Hey, this is Steve Morrison with Errant Adventures, and you're listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In Chapter 54, the companions are back in the Potter's studio that serves as their temporary home. Here, they reflect on their successful mission to assassinate Goddard and take down the famous knight, Sir Petrick Salomar. Meanwhile, at Whitestone Castle, Krell is reflecting on a recent encounter with Sivan. The beautiful consort has made a very strange request of him, asking that he bring more male prisoners to the dungeon. Krell had refused her, of course, but why would she ask for such a thing? Returning to the PCs, they are summoned to Bromley's house. The leader of the Free League of Nepal has prepared a sumptuous dinner for them in celebration of their victory. He declares that not only is Nepal now a free state, but the companions are heroes who will be remembered by future generations. Yellowfly, Shawnee, Jace, and Bazu partake in the celebrations, but Catsbane cannot enjoy himself. He's worried about the moral consequences of all they've done. Perhaps he feels this way while the others do not because he has been concealing a secret. A demonic force has been gifting him with powerful magic lately, and Catsbane thinks it has gotten too close. The next day, he determines to pull back and ignore the call of dark magic. While he's deep in study, the other companions quarrel over the money they've received. Bazu and Shawnee think they should give it back, whereas Yellowfly and Jace wish to keep their shares. They've not truly managed to see eye to eye on this matter by dinner when they leave together for a meeting at the Pale Horse. When they arrive at the alehouse, they find the place packed with members of Bromley's Free League who raise a tremendous cheer at the sight of them. Chapter 55 Part 1 Day 131 Night Party status Yellowfly 25 of 30 hit points after receiving 5 hit points in healing from Bazu's Cure Light Wound spell. Shawnee, 20 of 26. Jace, 26 of 37. After receiving 6 hit points from Bazu's second Cure Light Wounds. Catsbane, 17 of 17 hit points. Bazu, 13 of 13. Spells available. Catsbane has memorized Magic Missile, times two. Invisibility, Mirror Image, Infravision, and Haste. Bazu has prayed for. Bless. It proved to be an evening that was both heady and surreal. From the moment they arrived, they were pulled into the crowd, who continued to cheer and applaud madly. They were pushed and passed between this person and that, clapped on the back. Their hands were grabbed and shaken by dozens of men and women who named them heroes and liberators of Nepal. Drinks were forced on them as toast followed toast. 
Soon after their arrival, adding to the cheering and applause, a band led by the legendary Hamnet Rattlestaff struck up a merry tune. Now the companions were compelled to dance. Even Yellowfly was pulled into a great gyrating ring of dancers, which soon had grown a second outer ring that rotated in the opposite direction. This heaving miasma of festive humanity kept up for hours before a bell was rung, announcing that dinner was about to be served. As the doors of the kitchen opened and the smell of garlic, onion, and meat filled the room, the throng surged towards the bar, carrying the companions with them like an ocean current. Dozens of venison and ale pies were carried forth on huge wooden planks. Barrel after barrel of strong ale was drained as the party raged on through the evening and well after sunset. It wasn't until after things subsided a little that Shawnee noticed a familiar face tending the bar and helping to serve up their food. It was Briar Patches, looking far more hale than he had last time they had been together. It seemed he had found employment at the horse. After many hours, the food was gone. The music was done, and the crowd hushed themselves to a murmur. Bromley, who had been splitting his time between the bar and the kitchen, walked over to the stage, holding aloft a traditional Nepulic axe, identical to the one Shawnee had used to behead Lord Goddard. It might have been the exact same axe for all she knew. His raising high of the weapon must have been some kind of signal to everyone that a proper meeting was about to begin, for the crowd parted, allowing him up to the stage. Once there, Bromley greeted the assembly and addressed them as the men and women of the Free League. To those 300 souls gathered before him, he announced the official declaration of Nepul's independence after over three centuries of oppression. He told them word of their withdrawal from Camertine, and the rule of its monarchy had been sent not only to Silmoral, but also to the capital cities of Zaysha and Camranth, the latter of which was expected to provide military support to Nepul. The absence of Shrawl's fighting woman at the meeting suggested that she might be one of Bromley's envoys. Shrawl was also absent. Perhaps he too carried word of their secession to the east. Or, possibly they were still in Nepul, but conducting a similar, smaller meeting taking place at one of several other venues this evening. Bromley told them there were assemblies concurrently being held at the Western Watchtower, the Church of Sadal, and the Commandeered Magistrate's Office. The Pale Horse simply couldn't hold all of Nepul's revolutionaries. In his speech, Bromley also lauded the efforts of the Companions, naming their victory in the autumn during the King's so-called Three Days of Blood and Justice, and their claiming of Goddard's head. Salomar's body was also on display, mounted on a rack right above the city's gate, he said. He finished with an inspiring call to the members of the Free League to redouble their efforts. War was coming, he said, and Colfrey was too prideful to accept what had happened. He would not sit idly by. When the Silmarillions came, he said, they would break like waves against the walls of Nepul until their spirit, too, was broken. But in order for them to succeed, whether war came in winter or in spring, they would need to prepare. There was work to be done, Bromley said, defenses to build, weapons to forge, and food to store up. Although the matter of his speech was serious, Bromley smiled as he spoke. He projected triumph and confidence, and it was infectious. With his hand over his heart, he declared that he had never been prouder in his life to say that he was a free man of Nepul. He concluded by asking a somewhat drunk and completely unprepared Yellowfly to join him on the stage and say a few words. Once standing beside Bromley, Yellowfly looked out over the sea of hopeful faces that filled the room, wondering what to say. He decided to say nothing at all. He merely held the silverthorn over his head and drew it singingly from its scabbard. The crowd 
mostly silent until then, went wild. Are you ready to rock? More importantly, are you ready to roll? Welcome to No Quest for the Wicked, an award-winning sci-fi actual play podcast using Paizo's space opera system, Starfinder. Stow away with us every other Wednesday as four best friends explore an entirely homebrew setting in a planet-hopping adventure that plunges the crew of the Maverick into a political and cosmic conspiracy that doesn't just put their lives at risk, but the system and even the whole universe. Join Merrick, the four-armed warrior in self-imposed exile as he breaks tradition and forges his own path with a passion hotter than the desert sun. Durin, a former assassin running from his dark past hoping to make a new life for himself. And Cody, an android with memory problems, an obsession with the 80s, and a desperate need to find the boy who made him. New episodes every Wednesday on NoQuestCast.com or your favorite podcasting app. Chapter 55 Part 2 Day 131 Late Night During the previous night, the beautiful but increasingly disturbing creature named Sivan had not visited Krell, and he had felt relieved about it. His body was marked by unhealed cuts, welts, and contusions, and the thought of another night with the young woman made him wince. Krell might even have been happy if he had known what he could not, that he would never see her again. The captain awoke at some point in the small hours, but instead of waking from a nightmare, as he often did lately, Krell awoke to one. There, at the foot of his bed, was the strangest and most terrifying thing he had ever seen. Glowing with a milky light and hovering in the air, supported by no body nor any other thing, was the shriveled head of Carrick Malmar. But the face was deformed. Carrick's eyes were black pits. His teeth were longer, and his white wispy hair undulated slowly in the air all around it as though it was submerged underwater. Encircling the brow was a misty gray ring of gray vapor. Krell sat up, bolt straight in bed, gasping and pulling the covers up against his chest like a frightened child. He felt the blood drain from his face. The air all around him went cold. Then the head of Carrick spoke to him. A disloyal dog receives the lash. Krell tried to speak, but all that came out was a strangled whimper and hitching of breath. He tried to push himself back, but was already pressing hard against the headboard. There was nowhere to go. He tried to tell himself it wasn't real, only the child of his fevered imagination, but it was right in front of him. A naughty dog sleeps on the floor. As the awful thing spoke, Krell felt himself yanked up into the air as if by an immense and invisible hand. <coughs> then, still clutching the bedsheets to his chest, he was thrown violently across the room. <coughs> He crashed into the wall, knocking picture frames to the ground and collapsing upon the floor among their broken frames. He dropped the sheets and held up his hand in a pathetic attempt to defend himself, as the head of Carrick spoke a third time. A naughty dog finds its own food. God, well, my castle now, for starve. Then, twin black beams, as thin as spiderwebs, shot forth from the darkened pits of Carrick's collapsed eyes. The crown of mist seemed to swirl, and the wispy hair waved in the air as though completely released from gravity. When the black beams hit Krell, he shrieked. Seized by a totality of agony he could never have imagined possible, he heard the bones of his back crack and pop from their sockets as it hunched and expanded. 
His jaw distorted and widened. His teeth pushed out from their gums, lengthening into fangs. His fingers and thumbs folded into his palms and melted into the flesh, while claws burst forth from his knuckles. The process of transformation was not fast, and Krell felt the full agony of every second. When it was over, Krell's human form had been replaced by a heaving, drooling, panting new one. Arise, commanded the ethereal face of Azorzul. Hound of Yath, sound that mournful cry and give voice to fear. It took me a while to settle on the Yeth Hound after I decided that Krell was going to undergo some kind of monstrous transformation for defying Azorazul's will, as expressed through his succubus servant, Sivan. Azorazul is not exactly a poet, but I do think he, or should I say it, I do think it has a certain taste for irony. I'm remembering how he made Kulfri exchange hats with his jester before destroying his mind and turning him into the real fool. Since Krell showed disobedience to the demonic entity in refusing to bring it new prisoners to feed on, I thought it might be fitting for Azorzul to turn him into his guard dog. Of course, it's not going to be just any dog. This is a game of D&D, and one that is creeping into the upper levels to boot. D&D has all kinds of dog-like monsters to choose from. There's the Shadow Mastiff, and of course the classic Hellhound. I considered both, but it was the Yeth Hound that really caught my attention. That's because the Yeth Hound retains some of its humanity in the eyes and face. It seems very much a cursed thing. In other words, it's perfect. Except when you read the monster description, it isn't, and for a couple of reasons. To my knowledge, the Yeth Hound first appears in the AD&D Monster Manual 2. Here's a quick summary of the creature from that text. They have an armor class of 0, which I believe translates to a 19 ascending, 3 plus 3 hit die, they travel in packs, can fly and have a special fear attack in addition to a nasty bite. They can only be harmed by silver weapons which do a single point of damage when they strike, or magical weapons which do their plus as damage. To make this creature work in Tale of the Manticore, I need to change a couple of things, though I'll try not to mess with it too much. First item on the chopping block is the number appearing. Krell is a solo Yeth Hound. There's no pack. The second thing to go is the ability to fly. I just think the monster is way cooler if it's earthbound. In my mind's eye, I see a cross between a Ghostbusters demon dog and the painfully poorly named Mottations from the Hunger Games. There's one other change to make, and it's an addition this time. I want to lean into this monster's vulnerability to daylight. Further additions do include some rules for this, but I'm homebrewing mine to keep things simple. If a Yeth Hound is struck by daylight, it will take 1-6 to six points of fire damage per round of exposure. I think these small tweaks will make the monster a better fit into the Tale of the Manticore world, and should also make it a more interesting opponent for the PCs. I am a little worried about just how swingy an encounter with such a monster could be, but, well, it's a level of chaos I'm willing to embrace. At the time of his transformation, Krell was an 8th level fighter, having leveled up fairly recently in episode 51. A Yeth Hound is only a 3 plus 3 hit die monster, but the polymorph other spell stipulates that the subject retains their hit points. Krell had 27 hit points at level 7, and now I'm adding... Okay, a 3 mins out at 4, making 31 in total. 
That may not be so impressive for an 8th level fighter, but the Yeth Hound's resistance to normal and even silver and magical weapons has just turned Krell into something of a tank. The party is not going to win by fighting toe-to-toe -to -toe with melee weapons, that's for sure. If they do need to get past him, they're going to have to get creative. Dramatis Personae, Bazu, nine years ago. Soon after Bazu reached the age of 20, he proposed to a young woman with whom he had fallen in love. Nality was, to him, the most beautiful woman in the world, both inside and out. She had a kind heart and a sweet face, with mahogany-colored hair falling in ringlets about it. Bazu knew that she loved him too. Of course, she had accepted his proposal, and, just like that, they were engaged. At that time, Bazu was a man with a strong faith, but he'd no intentions of pursuing the life of a cleric. As an only child, he was the heir to his family's business, built by his father, importing fine vintages from Zaysha, firewater from Camranth, and, until it was no longer possible to do so, mead from Sachori. Bazu's father was named Ramil. Ramil was a shrewd and aggressive man who thought of only two things, family and business. To him, the two were one and the same. For this reason, Bazu was extremely anxious about sharing his intention to ask for Nality's hand in marriage with his father. This was because Nality happened to be the daughter of his father's biggest rival. Luckily, his father had not balked when he told him, and it was with considerable relief that Bazu received his blessing. At this point in his life, Bazu's future could not have been brighter, and he was a happy, happy man. He already had the heart of the woman he loved, and soon she would be his wife. He was set to inherit his father's business, which would surely merge with the rival business and become one of the biggest importing companies in Camertine. Life was good, and Bazu felt lucky. But all that changed a month before the wedding day. Bazu decided to surprise Nality by bringing her some flowers he had purchased on a whim. When he arrived at his fiancée's family's estate, he was told by the doorman, Harvit, that he was not permitted to enter. Harvit was stern, acting as if he didn't even know Bazu, who in turn became quite perplexed. Bazu had known Harvit for the several years that constituted his acquaintance and subsequent courtship of Nality, and the two men had always gotten along well. This sudden frosting over of their relationship came as such a surprise that at first Bazu thought the man was playing a joke on him. But if it was a joke, the punchline came when Harvit shut the door in Bazu's face after telling him he was no longer welcome on the property. Confused and insulted, Bazu had pounded on the door. He could hear voices arguing from the other side of the portal. One of those voices, he quickly realized, belonged to his betrothed, and so he redoubled his efforts, calling up to the second-story window when he saw a glimpse of Nality's face. The arguing within ceased, and, after a few more minutes of waiting, Nality opened the door, but only an inch. Bazu wondered if she had a foot braced against the other side. Again, he felt hurt and confused. There was no need for any of this. He was no monster that would go thundering ahead like a wild bull. Instead, as was his nature, he adopted a calmer approach. Beloved, he began. What on earth has come over Harvard? And why would he not permit me to enter? Come, open the door and let us talk. Nality's expression did not promise much hope for that. Her lips were pressed together and her dark eyes shone. Don't call me that. And we may not talk, Bazu. Not today. Not ever. Bazu managed to summon a half-smile and joked, Well, that will make it difficult to conduct a proper marriage ceremony, don't you think? He laughed, though he did not feel any mirth. What, shall we say our vows and mime? There was a moment of grim silence as the flip remark perished in the air between them. 
Her chin quivered, but she quickly regained her composure and replied, There will be no marriage, no wedding ceremony, at least not between us, Basu. Although her face was as rigid as a statue's, her eyes betrayed a deep pain. You need to go. She started to push the door closed, but Bazu intercepted and held it ajar. Amity, this has gone far enough. Now there was a tremor in her voice. I'm sorry, Bazu. Something awful suddenly occurred to Bazu, and he spoke with alarm. What did you mean just then when you said, not for us? The young woman said nothing. Amity, please. Bazu pressed. I am promised to another, came the reply. It was only a whisper. My father has given me to another suitor. Bazu was unprepared for this. His jaw worked soundlessly for a few moments before he managed to speak. By all the gods of Marath, what are you telling me? Yesterday you loved me, and now you love another? Is that how it goes? I refuse to believe you. Believe what you want, Bazu. It is over between us. In one month's time, I marry Edmund Rith. Rith? Rith? Why? This makes no sense at all. His fortunes are less than mine. His prospects fewer still. For the sake of all the gods, he is your family's rival. Nality, explain yourself. You would not like what you heard, Basu. I think I deserve some kind of explanation. Basu's face was beginning to turn purple. I would know the truth. Now tell me. Nality sighed heavily. Her voice became heavy and cold. Yes, I suppose you do deserve that much. But as I say, you will not like it. Wherefore do you speak to me so? As though we were strangers? Because after this, after I explain, Bazu, we will be strangers henceforth. Bazu spread his palms in a helpless gesture. I stand amazed and know not what to say, Nality. Then listen, and be satisfied that there is no other outcome than this one. When our courtship grew serious, your father made overtures of friendship to mine own, as one would expect. When we became engaged, he told my father they were truly brothers. My father believed yours, and took him into his confidence. He shared all manner of things, both personal and concerning the family business. Is this beginning to make sense? Buzzer's face slackened. My father, he didn't... He did, said Nality. Your father used the information mindshare to ruin several relationships vital to our business. He stole our trade secrets and even tried to mar my father's reputation with scandal. We might never have known had the Rith family not come forward with the proof. What proof? This so-called proof must be false. A mere fabrication. The proof is indisputable. Nality now looked merely tired. Instead of destroying my family, your father has pushed us into the arms of a former rival. And you into his bed. Nality sniffed. Such is the way of the world, Bazu. It's time for you to grow up and see that. You always admired the worshippers of Sadar for their wisdom. Perhaps you could use some wisdom of your own. Is there nothing I could say, Nality? She bit her lip and shook her head. You would do well to forget we ever met, Bazu. It is over between us, and that is something that cannot be changed. If you have further questions, I suggest you bring them to your father. Goodbye. She pushed the door closed, and Bazu never saw her face again. Bazu was simultaneously enraged and heartbroken. He felt as though the bottom of his world had disappeared, and now he was in free fall. 
His first inclination was to seek out Eidmon Rith and challenge him to a duel, but he quickly recognized this as folly. His true rival, it would appear, was his own father. He would have to do as Nalati had said, go home and seek answers there. And that is what he did. Bazu returned home and put the question to his father directly. Surprisingly, his father made no attempt to deflect or deceive. He admitted all, laughing and telling Bazu to console himself. With all the secrets he had learned from Nalati's father and the business contracts he had converted to his own accounts, Bazu was now said to become one of the richest merchant's sons in Camertine. Soon he would be able to buy anything he wanted, have any woman he desired to wife or as consort, and, his father said, he would forget about Nalati in a fortnight. But Bazu's father had underestimated the purity of his son's love for the young woman. Bazu flew into a rage, vowing to disown himself and join the church. Perhaps one day he would achieve actual wisdom, but if not, at least he could forever flee from a world where a handful of gold coins was worth more than all the love in a man's heart. Quite often when I'm putting the show together, I look for opportunities to end an episode on a cliffhanger. Today though, I'm doing something different. Today I'm ending the episode with a ray of hope and optimism. Perhaps you've already guessed that Bazu has just reached level 5. Let's get some dice and update his character sheet with some improvements. First up, new hit points. Clerics get a d6 for their hit die, though Bazu does take a minus one penalty to the roll due to his low constitution score. Rolling. A four. Oh, that's not too bad, but the penalty will knock it down to a three. New hit points are 16. Next are his one in six chances for stat increases. For each six I roll, his stat will go up by one. Let's get into it. First up is strength. I've got a 2. How about intelligence? 5. Wisdom. Well, this one would not only be appropriate, but very useful. I've got a 1. Well, I guess that's matters of the heart for you. Dexterity. A 2. Constitution. A 6 here would also be very good. I've got a 4. Charisma. A 3. Oof. Hard luck. This is not the most spectacular level up, is it? Not a single bump. At least there's his increased ability to work divine magic. At level 5, Bazu will get two spells of each level 1 and 2. Our cleric is shaping up to be an important member of the party. He has an iron will, and his devotion to Sadal is strong. One thing I know, where they're going, the companions are going to need a man of unshakable faith. Happy New Year, everyone, and thank you so much for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you enjoy the show and would like to help to support it, you know, a New Year's resolution, say, there are lots of ways to do so. You can recommend it online or to friends. You can like and repost episode announcements on social media. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, the Pendulum World Building Tool, or Encyclopedia Manticorica on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks to everyone for their support of the show. At this time, please allow me to share one of your kind reviews. This one is by CornyDog8765. Corny writes, So good, just start with Season 1. Okay, pot addicts, put this in your ears. The host of the show would tell you to start with Season 2. Trust me, you'll be so addicted that you binge through it too fast to be satisfied. You'll go back to Season 1 anyways, so just start there. Thanks, Corny Dog, for that kind review. I admit that when I hear the early episodes from Season 1, I shake my head and wonder what I was thinking. Thankfully, my audience has been very patient with my growing pains, and I am certainly grateful for that. 
End of the day, when someone named Corny Dog tells you to put something in your ears, you know it has to be good advice. Enough said. I'd also like to take a moment to thank my excellent cast of voice actors. This episode features a wonderful duet scene featuring Andrew Fling as a young Bazu and newcomer Lyric. I first heard Lyric on the excellent post-apocalyptic semi-actual play Echoes of Eshetan. If you haven't checked out E of E, you are missing out. Lyric is a regular, and Coop the GM is a fantastic storyteller, and a great audio engineer, too. I'm really happy with how that flashback scene came together, so Andrew and Lyric, thank you so much. For listeners who'd like to get in touch with me, I'm at Manticore Tale on X, or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. If you prefer email, it's taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. Finally, I keep a blog where I post all kinds of show and RPG-related stuff, like art, maps, and show notes. You can find it at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Come with us, dear viewers, on a journey full of horror, humor, and mystery to the Regency village of Bledlow, where three young ladies are about to discover nothing is quite as they believed. You can follow along on YouTube and Twitch every other week, if they survive. My mother likes to be sure that we are always very presentable. In Kotalia, in her underwear. <laughs> if you want to talk about somebody's silly hat, I mean, Edwin's right next to you. I do miss you terribly when you go away. I, you know, I'll be home soon. I promise. This is quite disturbing. Why would he have such unholy books? Have you come for my power? Some, 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 some.